0: Stripping Down Science The Naked Scientists
1: Hello, it's Sunday the 26th of June. Welcome to a special Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler. This week I'm joined by two very special guests from Cambridge University's medical school, Katrina Stewart and Will Hamilton. They opted to take a break from their medical training and join us at the Naked Scientists for a few weeks. So what better way to test them out than to have them join me on air? So guys, what have you got prepared for us today?
2: Well, this week we're looking at pain management. We'll find out how chronic pain can change your life... And explore a few ways to put paid to problem pain.
3: And I explore the proteins of pain to find out how new genetic techniques could lead the way to novel painkillers.
1: And in the news we'll be hearing how a hammock could ensure a sound night's sleep, why TB vaccinations are best given on their own, and
2: how flocking together is costly for pigeons. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, then get in touch.
3: You can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page, that's at thenakedscientists.com Facebook, or drop us an email. Our email address is Chris at thenaked scientists.com.
0: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk.
1: This is The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler, Katrina Stewart, and Will Hamilton, and we'll begin with a look at some of this week's top science
2: stories. Will, what do you have for us? Well, a new study has shown that a breakthrough vaccine against tuberculosis may be more effective when given alone, rather than alongside other vaccines. A study by Martin Oter and colleagues on four-month-old West African infants found that a next-generation TB vaccine, known rather unspectacularly as MVA85A, is significantly less effective when given alongside other conventional vaccines. TB is a major health problem worldwide, and the existing vaccine, basile clement guerin or BCG, named after its inventors, is not entirely effective. The rise of drug-resistant TB strains is making the need for a top-up vaccine in addition to the BCG ever more pressing. This was the aim of a team at Oxford University that created the MVA85A vaccine. They started with a strain of vaccinia virus, that's the pox virus, which was used as a vaccine to immunise against and ultimately eradicate smallpox. The so-called modified vaccinia virus Ankara, or MVA, was then manipulated genetically to express a protein found on mycobacterium tuberculosis, called 85A. The immune response against 85A protects against tuberculosis as it primes the immune system to target the TB-causing bacteria. The modified vaccinia virus is important because it biases the immune system towards generating killer cells that attack pathogens directly, rather than using soluble molecules like antibodies. This so-called cell-mediated immunity is essential to fighting off TB effectively. Martin Oter and colleagues at Oxford had already demonstrated that MVA85A is safe and effective at boosting TB immunity in animal models, and preliminary studies on people in Africa and the UK are showing promise. In this latest study, the authors randomly divided a sample of four-month-old children from the Sekuta Health Centre in Gambia into three groups. One group received the standard selection of vaccines called the Extended Programme of Immunisation, or EPI, recommended by the World Health Organisation. This includes vaccines against hepatitis B, diphtheria, tetanus and others. The second group received the EPI plus the new TB vaccine, MVA85A and the last group received just the MV85A alone, without the other vaccines. The scientists then measured the amount of interferon gamma produced by the participants of the study at 4 and 20 weeks post-vaccination. Interferon gamma is a signalling molecule that pushes the immune system towards cell-mediated rather than antibody-mediated immunity, and remember that was important for combating TB. They found that mva 85 a was significantly better at inducing interferon gamma and so promoting cell-mediated immunity when given alone rather than when given alongside the other vaccines. This may be because the other vaccines induce antibody responses rather than the cell-mediated immunity, and the two responses are known to inhibit one another. So the study shows, firstly, that this new TB vaccine is safe and could work at boosting cell-mediated immunity against TB. And secondly, that public health experts may have to re-evaluate how multiple vaccines are given together to children in the developing world. And that work was published this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. I assume the reason that they're given lots of vaccines at once
1: is because they're exposed to a wide range of different potential infections. So actually,
2: delaying something could introduce its own risk. Yeah, and one of the main reasons why they're given at once is purely practical, just because it's very difficult to get people from remote rural communities in many of these countries in the developing world into the clinics to receive the vaccines. And so it would be much better if you could do it all in one go.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Will. And Katrina, what do you have for us?
3: Yep, so also in the news this week, 16-month-old babies can use limited evidence to decide if they've been given a faulty toy or are just using the toy incorrectly according to a study published this week in the journal Science. So in order to achieve our goals, we need to learn to make this important distinction between faults with ourselves and faults with our environment. For example, if a light switch doesn't work, is it because we press the wrong button or is it because the bulb is broken? So scientists from Massachusetts Institute of Technology designed some clever experiments where infants watched an adult pressing a button on a green toy to produce a sound. The baby was handed either the green toy or an otherwise identical yellow toy, neither of which worked when the baby pressed the button. The infant had to make a decision. Were they making a mistake, for example not pressing the toy hard enough, or was the toy itself broken? When they were presented with the green toy, which they'd previously seen working well, babies tended to hand the toy to their parents once they'd failed, possibly deciding that the fault was with themselves, and their parents would be more successful. But when they were given the yellow toy... Babies were more likely to discard the toy and reach for another, a red one placed nearby. As the babies had no evidence that yellow toys worked at all, they were more likely to believe that the fault was with the object and have another go with a different toy. But researchers wanted to rule out alternative explanations. Could the babies be given the experimenter's toy be really less likely to want a new toy? Or were they handing toys over because they thought their parents might be able to fix the toy rather than show them how to use it? So experimenters showed the babies the green toy again, But this time, the babies watched as the same experiment sometimes succeeded and sometimes failed with the toy, suggesting the fault was with the toy itself. Babies picked up on this and were more likely to give up on the familiar green toy and reach for the new red one. Next, babies watched two different adults, one who consistently failed to produce the noise when they pressed the green toy, and one who always succeeded. After this, babies tended to hand the toy over to their parents, suggesting that babies were more aware that there was a knack to it and they hadn't mastered these fascinating results show that from a very early age, babies can make evidence-based decisions about which response to failure, seeking help or exploring alone, will be most likely to lead to future success. They understand the important distinction between faults with themselves or the world around them.
1: Is there a bit of a risk with this sort of experiment, similar to that we see with when doing animal behaviour experiments, that we're actually imposing our own judgment on what they're doing and it's very very hard to say exactly why a baby does something just like it would be hard to say why a bird does something or why a monkey does something.
3: There certainly is that risk yes and all you can really tell from this study is that there was definitely a significant difference in the decisions that the babies made according to how the experimenters uh, um, reacted and what toys they were given.
1: it would be very interesting and I'm sure there are lots of new parents around who would love to know exactly what their babies are thinking. Thank you very much Katrina. Also in the news this week, a new analysis of the way that pigeons flock suggests that it actually costs them energy to do so. It's actually more efficient for them to fly on their own. To find out what this could tell us about bird behaviour, I spoke to Dr Jim Usherwood from the Royal Veterinary College.
4: Birds fly around in flocks quite a lot. That's something we know about birds. They like to be together. The question's been there for a while. What are they getting from it? Because they, they could easily not fly around in flocks. And in the background of bird Worlds we, we, we think of lots of relatively large birds flying around in Vs. Things like pelicans and geese fly around in nice, nicely ordered Vs. And the previous work on that has shown some kind of, of, of benefit from flying in a V. You, you flap at a lower rate and your heart rate goes down. And indeed, if you fly airplanes in a, a nicely ordered V, they reduce the fuel consumption. So you can fly in such a way that you save energy. Now, most birds don't fly around in well-structured Vs. Pigeons are a good example of a normal flock, termed a cluster flock. Why might they be flying around as a group? We simply didn't know whether they were getting any kind of aerodynamic or energetic benefit from it. So what we went about doing is putting, in effect, sat-nav on every pigeon and some inertial sensors. So so a lot of the same kit as you get on an iPhone, but in a a smaller and better package on on every pigeon of a flock got them to fly around and then worked out that these birds are probably getting some kind of energetic cost from flying close together, which leaves the biologists in us looking for why on earth would you fly in a flock? And and we've got to look for different answers for that now.
1: So what were the conditions under which they were flying? Could they have been flocking in response to something that they saw in the environment?
4: So this is part of the beauty of these new sensors now. You can leave them on animals, they can uh, wake up when, when the animal's doing something... And you can let the animals roam free doing exactly what they would normally be doing. So these were put on, on, on my, my flock of racing pigeons, uh, which were allowed to do whatever they wanted for, for, for three days. They're flying around sometimes at six o'clock in the morning when nobody was around here. They'd take off, fly around in a flock for five, ten minutes, tens of thousands of flaps, pulling 2G as they go around in circles, and then sitting down and having a bit more breakfast. And they're doing this quite spontaneously very much like uh, wild rock doves would do. So, yes, th- these are in free flight, but we can take the, the effects of going up and accelerating and going around corners into account because we've got so many flaps.
1: So how many pigeons were you following, and how many sort of wing beats did you actually manage to capture?
4: So we wired up up to 20. Not all 20 flew all the time. And then we're talking about a quarter of a million flaps, 400 pigeon kilometres we measured which is just just awesome. It's the sort of data volumes that you would just dream of. If you're trying to do this in a wind tunnel, just imagine trying to do that.
1: The other question, of course, is for all of these pigeons, they have a bit of technology strapped to their back that they wouldn't normally have. Is it possible that the way that you're measuring this is actually having an impact? Is that leading to the fact that they need to fly with greater energy?
4: Anything you add to an animal is, is likely to influence it a bit, especially when it comes to aerodynamics. Uh, a little bump sticking up could do untold things with drag. But having said that, they were flying voluntarily, and watching from the ground point of view, they're flying around in a flock like they always do. So we've got no particular reason to think they're doing something completely out of the ordinary. And then whatever the, uh, the effect of having a logger on is presumably the same for all of them and so I don't say it's a huge issue but of course there's always a push to lighter, smoother, better loggers.
1: Why are you looking at pigeons in particular when we have other birds that have this glorious V formation or these incredible flocks of starlings that that seem almost liquid in the air? Why pigeons?
4: Pigeons are pretty useful in that they represent typical flocks. They also have the great advantage that they can carry a fair old payload These pigeons are quite happy to fly carrying a payload of 30 grams and they come back. So we're not having to bother to telemeter the information off them. We can just walk up to them in the shed afterwards, pull out an SD card and get a gigabyte of data off them. And that makes things a lot easier.
1: And what impact did flying in a flock actually have compared to a bird just flying free on its own away from other birds?
4: It's actually quite a large difference. If you think of a pigeon flapping along at 8 hertz, then as it gets into a flock, you go up to 8.1-ish hertz. That doesn't sound much, but if you compare that with how much it changes due to flying uphill, if it's flying uphill at 4 metres a second, that's a similar kind of change in flap frequency.
1: What advantages do you think there may be in flying in a flock? We always say there's strength in numbers, but then... If that strength is counteracted by the fact that you need to put more energy into flight, then it seems that that would be something that would be selected
2: against.
4: Yes. So we, we, we've got the slight issue that they're, they're presumably flying in order to take exercise uh, primarily here because they're not going anywhere in, in these flights. They're, they're getting up from their loft, they're screaming around, they're going back for some more breakfast. So is it necessarily a bad thing that they, they flap a bit harder? And then the prime thing that people always think of when uh, considering flocks is some kind of protection for, from attack. And the evidence uh, for that is fairly strong in that when there's a, a sparrowhawk or something like that around, they tend to bunch in a, a much tighter flock. So there's probably some advantage of being in a tight flock in terms of being difficult to catch.
1: Is this information only really interesting to biologists? Is it only useful for people studying birds or studying flocks?
4: Well, of course, I'm coming at it from the biologist's end. There's more and more interest in these autonomous or unmanned air vehicles, uh, drones, and the flocks of them are becoming more and more useful now. And they're always interested in making things more efficient. If you can get a little bit more life out of your drone, then that's very useful. And this would point to not flying your drones around uh, as a flock of pigeons, but keeping in a, a goose-like structure if you can.
1: Jim Usherwood from the Structure and Motion Lab at the Royal Veterinary College, North Mims in Hertfordshire. And you can read about that work in the journal Nature this week. But now back to more of
2: this week's top science news. Will, what else do you have for us? Well, it's good news for hay fever sufferers like me, because by cracking the crystal structure of the histamine receptor, scientists are on the road to developing more effective antihistamine drugs to treat allergy and inflammation. Histamine is a molecule produced by special immune cells in response to certain foreign bodies and potentially dangerous pathogens. It has a variety of effects depending on which of the four types of histamine receptor it binds to, named H1 to H4. Histamine signaling, particularly through the H1 receptor, is known to play a crucial role in a variety of allergic conditions, including hay fever, asthma, food allergies, and the itchy response to insect bites, Conventional antihistamines such as cetirizine and acrivastine—that's Benadryl once a day and Benadryl Allergy Relief, respectively—work by blocking the H1 receptor. Using X-ray crystallography, Tatsuro Shimamura and colleagues unraveled the molecular structure of the H1 receptor with a resolution of 3.1 angstroms, or 0.00000031 millimeters. So that's a very fine level of detail. All four of the histamine receptors are part of a much larger family of G-protein-coupled receptors, or GPCRs, which includes thousands of different proteins. Shimamura's group showed that in the first-generation antihistamine, doxepin, it interacts with a particular site in the H1 receptor that is found in most G-protein-coupled receptors. This explains why doxepin was so non-selective, and hence why it had so many side effects, including sedation, dry mouth, and heart arrhythmias, because as well as blocking the H1 receptors, it blocked many other G-protein-coupled receptors as well. In addition, duxepin could cross the blood-brain barrier and block signalling in the brain, adding to the sleepiness. Second-generation antihistamines, like cetirizine, which I already mentioned, have fewer side effects and are considered non-drowsy, The X-ray crystallography suggests that this improvement is due to a second interaction with a different site on the H1 receptor, in addition to the one that older antihistamines bound to. This second site is not found in other G-protein-coupled receptors, which, combined with the reduced uptake across the blood-brain barrier, helps explain their greater selectivity and reduced side effects. This detailed look at the H1 receptor and its interaction with antihistamines could help guide future drug discovery, So antihistamines used to treat allergies like hay fever may become more effective and with fewer side effects even than current medications. And that work was published this week in the journal Nature. So it's a bit like the old antihistamines
1: were a sort of skeleton key that would fit all of these different receptors. And it's only now that we really know the structure can we design exactly the right key that will only interact with the histamine receptors. And that should enable us to block hay fever
2: without all of these nasty, sleepy side effects. Absolutely. The old antihistamines just acted on so many different receptors and it went straight into the brain. And so it had a very blanketing effect uh, on the whole of the brain.
1: Well, thank you very much. And speaking of sleepiness, I think this brings us through to our last news story, Katrina.
3: Yes, this week has seen breakthroughs into the mysteries of sleep, helping us understand the ancient tradition of rocking babies to sleep and why we need our shut eye at all. Researchers from France and Switzerland have discovered that the rocking motion found in cradles and hammocks not only lulls people to sleep more quickly than lying still, but also encourages deeper sleep. So they asked volunteers to have a 45-minute nap in their experimental hammock, which was either still or gently rocking, while an electroencephalogram, or EEG, was used to monitor the waves of activity in their brains. The study, published this week in Current Biology, found that the rocking motion helped volunteers fall asleep more quickly, with a shorter period of stage 1 or light sleep. The rocking caused more stage 2 sleep and increased the number of sleep spindles. These are important patterns of brain activity that seem to be needed to refresh our ability to learn after our sleep. So rocking helps send us to sleep and helps deepen our sleep in an afternoon nap. The next step will be to see if the same thing applies for a full night's sleep and to see if the sleep changes caused by rocking help with learning and memory consolidation. Perhaps rocking beds will soon be standard options in all furniture shops. But why do we need to fall asleep at all? So also in the news this week, fruit flies have taught us more about the role of sleeping in refreshing our minds so that they can lay down new memories. Researchers publishing in the journal Science used fruit flies that were genetically modified to fall asleep if the temperature rises above 31 degrees centigrade. Armed with this ability to induce sleep on demand, they wanted to investigate the synaptic homeostasis model the idea that new connections between nerves are continuously formed when an animal is awake, and these are downscaled during sleep to prevent an overload of circuits. They showed that the flies in a socially enriched environment, with exposure to about 90 other flies, formed lots of new connections between their nerves, and this meant that they were unable to lay down long-term memories when researchers tried to train them to suppress their mating rituals. But flies that had been socially isolated, on the other hand, forming fewer new connections between their nerves and later performed well on the long-term memory task. But can sleep refresh the brain and abolish the effects of the social enrichment? The researchers used temperature to allow the flies four hours of sleep after their social enrichment, and this did indeed restore the ability of the flies to form new long-term memories, supporting the idea that a period of sleep simplifies neural connections and leaves the flies better able to learn.
1: So is the take-home message from this that when you've got important things to learn, maybe you've started a new job and there's lots of names and faces to remember, or maybe you've got exams coming up, the important thing to do is have a good solid nap and preferably in a hammock.
3: (laughs) The hammock will help you to have that good solid nap, and the good solid nap should clear your mind and make you more able to lay down new memories.
1: Well, thank you very much. And if you would like to follow up on any of the stories we've covered this week, you can find more information and the references online at thenakedscientists.com news.
0: Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. Look us up online at nakedscientists.com.
1: This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, with Katrina Stewart and Will Hamilton.
3: Still to come, we look into new ways to manage and even block
1: problem pain. But now, Wicken Fen National Nature Reserve in Cambridgeshire is one of Europe's most important wetlands. A vast expanse of meadows, sedge and reed beds, it's home to more than 8,000 species of plants, dragonflies and birds. Nick Davis, a professor of behavioural ecology at the University of Cambridge, has been doing fieldwork on cuckoos at Wicken Fen for more than 25 years. They're known as tricksters, cheats and even parasites. The cuckoo is one of those birds that enthralls nature lovers and it provides scientists with continual insights into its complex behaviour. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson joined Nick beside towering reeds on a windy day on the fens to find out more. The way to find cuckoos on Wicken
5: Fen is to go looking with a stick for reed warbler's nests because here on the fen reed warbler is the host that the cuckoo targets. And right here in the reeds, if I just part them with this stick, we can see a reed warbler nest, which is a beautiful cup.
6: That's tiny. It sort of would fit in the palm of my hand. It
5: would, and it's suspended between four new reeds, and it keeps the reed warbler eggs nice and snug, even on a strong, windy day like this. If I just tilt the nest slightly, you can see that it contains four reed warbler eggs, So, so far, this nest has avoided the attention of the cuckoo.
6: You're specifically interested in the behaviour of cuckoos, and this seems to be an area that is bringing up more and more new insights every year, it seems.
5: It is. It's been known for a very long time that one of the tricks the cuckoo uses is to lay an egg which mimics the host egg, in other words, an egg which looks just like the host egg. Now, there are several subspecies or host races of cuckoos in Europe, The ones that we find here on Wiccan Fen are specific to reed warbler hosts and they're genetically programmed to lay a green egg which matches the green egg of the reed warbler. Now it's very well known that this egg matching is really important to fool the hosts and we've shown that by experiment. If you put a model egg of a different colour into a host nest, they'll throw them out. Another form of trickery occurs at the chick stage when the cuckoo chick hatches out It throws out of the nest all the host eggs, so it's raised on its own. And here it employs the most wonderful vocal trick. It begs at a fantastic rate, which sounds just like a whole brood of hungry host young.
7: Now, more
6: recently I read about research that involved hawks as well, and I would never have put cuckoos and hawks in the same sentence.
5: (laughs) That's right. The tricks I've described so far occur at the egg stage and at the chick stage. And we wondered whether the hosts have got a defence early on to try and thwart the cuckoo from laying in the first place. What we discovered is that if reed warblers see a cuckoo at their nest, they're much more likely to throw out an egg. And we showed that by experiment by presenting them with a stuffed adult cuckoo, or a model wooden cuckoo we made out of balsa wood. And if they saw this model close to their nest, they became much more fussy. They were alerted, if you like, to the possibility of parasitism. So the cuckoo's done two things in response. One trick is actually to mimic hawks by having underpart barring and grey plumage and hawk-like behaviour too with a dashing flight. Why we think the cuckoo benefits from looking like a hawk is that the host would then be reluctant to approach this cuckoo or hawk-like object close to their nest. So the cuckoo then has time to slip in and lay without being detected. Now to test whether this cuckoo barring really is the key, we presented our model cuckoos either with barred underparts or with unbarred underparts. And what we showed that is if the model had barred underparts, the readable hosts were much more frightened of it, much more reluctant to approach closely. So actually the big problem now for the host is that if, if the cuckoos are so secretive, how can they gauge whether they're likely? to be within a cuckoo area and so likely to be targeted as a host. Well, instead of just relying on their own perception of cuckoo activity, what we've discovered is that the reed warblers also listen out for their neighbours' responses to cuckoos. So it's a bit like a neighbourhood watch system. (laughs) Whenever a reed warbler sees a cuckoo in its territory, it mobs with a rasping sound, a sort of skrrr call. And as soon as this rasping call takes place, all the neighbours will quickly come over to see what's going on. And you can see the reeds twitching as the neighbours fly often 20, 30 metres to come and have a look at the source of all this alarming. Well, we've shown by experiment that if they see neighbours mobbing a cuckoo, then they up their defences at their own nests. So the cuckoo's really got a double reason for being secretive.
1: Professor Nick Davies from the University of Cambridge talking to Sue Nelson at Wiccan Fen, And you can hear an extended version of that interview on the
2: Planet Earth podcast. Find that at thenakedscientists.com slash planet earth. And this week's focus is on chronic pain and the challenges it presents to healthcare practitioners. It's estimated that seven and a half million people suffer from chronic pain in the UK alone. A survey published in the European Journal of Pain in 2006 on over 46,000 people in 15 countries found that nearly a fifth of all adults had suffered from pain for six months or more. Combined with the fact that it can be very difficult to find effective treatments, chronic pain is a major problem facing healthcare systems like the British National Health Service. I travelled to the pain management unit at Ipswich Hospital to speak with Carol Ratcliffe, a retired nurse who has suffered chronic back pain for over 20 years, and with Dr Mike Bailey, the consultant anaesthetist and expert in pain management who is now treating Carol, to find out about chronic pain at the front line of hospital work.
8: I first injured my back when I was working over 20 years ago in 1988. I was nursing and I transferred a lady back to her wheelchair and as I... Moved her following all the rules and regulations. I felt my back suddenly give and I was in pain, and I've not worked since. It has affected me in more ways than even I. Probably appreciate. I have problems with sleeping because of the pain. I cannot walk any distance. I cannot carry anything. I cannot lift anything. I cannot do a supermarket shop. It has affected me completely and utterly.
2: That was Carol Ratcliffe and she's receiving treatment from Dr Mike Bailey, a consultant anaesthetist at the pain management unit in Ipswich Hospital.
9: Well, Carol's pain is complex and it's being treated in a number of ways. She's got a range of different painkillers, both ordinary painkillers, such as combinations of paracetamol and codeine, but also painkillers for nerve pain, such as nortriptyline and also
2: something called pregabalin. And as well as the pain medication that she's taking as tablets, she's also having other types of treatments... Yes, Carol has
9: had several spinal operations. Principally, we do these for patients who've had nerve pain, usually in the legs, coming from problems in the lower back. So the surgeons will remove the obstruction to the nerve pathway and hopefully relieve the pain. Carol has had several of those episodes, but sadly, like some people, she has still got nerve pain in her legs from the scarring of the nerves from the original problem. In a small number of patients in that sad situation with remaining nerve pain after spinal surgery, we can implant special electrodes to stimulate the spinal cord. What that does is it causes a tingling feeling in the area of the pain and actually relieves the pain by modulating or uh, altering the way in which the nerve messages are sent from the painful legs up towards the brain.
2: How does that actually block the pain? How does that electrical signal work?
9: What we have been working on for the last 50 years now is something called the gait control theory of pain. This was discovered by two scientists in the last century Patrick Wall, a neurophysiologist and anatomist, and Ron Melzack, who was a psychologist. What they noticed is that people could get very severe injuries and feel very little pain, or conversely, even very minor injuries or apparently healed injuries could still cause a lot of pain. So they said there must be something that influences the pain. They proposed that there was a so-called gate in the spinal cord in the pathway from the periphery up towards the brain. And we know that in the synapses or junctions between the nerves on that pathway, there are chances to change the way in which the pain messages are transmitted, and we call that a gate. Now, we know that certain things can close that gate, and some descending nerve messages down the pathway from higher up in the spinal cord are capable of closing the gate in the nerve pathway and that's I think what the electrical stimulation does. We can use other kinds of electrical stimulation such as a transcutaneous nerve stimulator or TENS machine and that's where we place electrodes on the outer part of the nervous system on the arm or the leg but that's not so effective and of course some of the painkillers which we use for nerve pain also act on the spinal pathways. And a good example of that is amitriptyline, an old-fashioned antidepressant, but it's also very effective for pain. So how effective are all of these treatments at dealing with pain? Do they actually work? You can never guarantee anything 100%. If we're looking at analgesics or painkillers... You can look at numbers needed to treat. In other words, how many patients would you need to give that medication to in order to achieve one satisfied patient? Now, even for very good painkillers, you would need to treat something like two to three patients in order to get a satisfied customer. And even the more sophisticated treatments like spinal cord stimulation don't have a 100% record by any means And there
2: are always side effects for all these treatments. So pain is normally thought of as a kind of short-term response. Someone bangs their foot and they get pain. So why is it that in some cases, as with Carol, she had an injury that hurt her back, but then the pain has carried on and it never went away properly? One of the reasons
9: is that nerves do not recover well from injury and they don't heal up like normal tissues, so they will often go on being irritable almost for life if they've been badly injured. The other thing is that we don't completely understand all the reasons, but we know that the nervous system sometimes gets a sort of pain memory which can go on causing trouble for years and years. The nervous system is not a static system like the wiring in our house or even in a computer. It's constantly changing and there are changes in the connections in the brain and also lower down in the nervous system to keep old pain circuits going.
2: Why do you think pain has been so difficult
9: to find treatments for? The way in which pain is transmitted throughout the body involves many different pathways and many different neurotransmitters. That's substances that pass nerve messages from one nerve to the next so that you're having to interfere, if you like, with that nerve pathway in lots of different ways. We also know that there are lots of things that can influence pain. And for instance, one good example is if you're stressed, you will get an increased pain experience as opposed to someone
2: who is calm. That was Dr Mike Bailey and Carol Ratcliffe at the Pain Management Unit at Ipswich Hospital. And Dr Bailey was also keen to stress that teaching patients psychological coping mechanisms to deal with living with chronic pain is also an important aspect of pain management with the NHS.
3: So pain is a huge problem and one that current drugs often fail to answer. To find new ways of blocking pain, scientists are investigating the pain pathway from start to finish, from the tips of our fingers to the depths of our brains. I spoke to John Wood, who is Professor of Molecular Neurobiology and Head of the Molecular Nociception Group at University College London. He's one of the leading scientists involved in looking for new ways to interfere with pain.
10: So what happens when you tread on a drawing pin or have some acute pain episode is that there are specialised nerves that innervate uh, all parts of the body, the the skin and the muscle and the viscera. And they've got various receptors on them that respond to chemicals released from damaged tissue. So what will happen is that you'll damage the skin and then some chemicals will activate these sensory nerves. And they'll then send an electrical signal into the spinal cord, which will activate further neurons up into the forebrain, the cortex, where pain will eventually be perceived.
3: So scientists are beginning to understand the processes involved in sensing pain, but we're still far from conquering this unpleasant sensation with drugs.
10: It's true that um, we're still dependent upon drugs that have been around for uh, really many centuries. Uh, Opioid drugs and uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, aspirin-like drugs, are the mainstays. But in the main, we're limited by the side effect problems of, of a number of quite potent drugs. And uh, there are, I think the estimate is something like 6% of the population are suffering from some f- quite severe ongoing chronic pain, which isn't adequately treated at the moment. So that translates into 2 or 3 million people in the United Kingdom are, are very poorly treated for ongoing pain as, as we speak.
3: But this may be about to change. New advances in techniques to analyse people's genetics may hold the key.
10: Yeah, that's true. It's been uh, quite wonderful, uh, the payoff that's come from sequencing the human genome. It's now possible to uh, get the complete sequence of all the DNA that encodes proteins in a person for about a £1,000. And uh, it's become terribly straightforward to map mutations which may underlie various pathological conditions, including unusual pain states. So we've been looking around for people with extreme pain syndromes that are heritable, families which have got uh, either a loss or gain of uh, pain syndromes. And we can then find genes that are obviously significant in terms of normal pain sensation by identifying the, the mutations that underlie these kind of pain conditions.
3: So in order to block pain with effective drugs, we'll need to understand the proteins needed for pain sensation.
10: Genetic studies of people that have a loss of pain sensation have highlighted two different sets of proteins. One, trophic factors, which are proteins that are involved in the development of the sensory nerves as one is growing up and even in utero. And a second set of proteins are the iron channels that are responsible for the electrical signaling that goes on in these uh, cells, which is responsible for sending information into the brain that tissue damage has occurred. So the two best examples in this area are the TRAC-A receptor, which is a, a trophic factor receptor, where you have a mutation in that that stops it working, you don't have any sensory nerves, and SCN9A, the, uh, the ion channel, which is responsible for uh, electrical signalling, particularly in those damaged sensing neurons that cause you to feel pain.
3: Studying people with rare genetic conditions that cause abnormal pain sensation may provide scientists with the information that they need to treat people with any type of pain.
10: Probably the best example comes from a research group in Cambridge by uh, Professor Jeffrey Woods, and he found a gene called SCN9A, which is lost in various families that are pain-free. So this uh, SCN9A gene makes a protein which is called a sodium channel, and this is responsible for electrical signaling in the sensory nerves that we were discussing earlier. So what you can now do is you can take this protein, uh, you can make it, in cells and you can then screen drugs that block its activity and this is what big pharma uh, the major pharmaceutical companies have been doing over the last 5 years or so and uh, fortunately there do seem to be some quite potent new drugs coming out that block uh, this gene product and um, which are effective painkilling drugs so this is you know this is hugely uh, exciting and over the next 5 to 7 years we hope that some of these compounds will become available in the clinic and uh, will actually be useful additions to the present set of drugs that we can use to treat pain.
3: So the gene identified by Geoffrey Wood's lab is a great example of a potential drug target.
10: Well SCN9A is a very interesting gene because it's been linked to both uh, loss of pain sensation and uh, in some unusual syndromes to people that have ongoing pain. And when the uh, gene is sequenced, so we find out what it actually does and how it's working. We find that um, It encodes a protein that's involved in electrical signaling. The people that uh, suffer ongoing pain as a result of mutations in this gene have a hyperactive protein which sends electrical signals into the brain at a very uh, high frequency in response to fairly low-level damaging stimuli. Whereas people that have got a loss of function of this uh, Uh, protein so that it doesn't work at all are unable to feel any pain at all and interestingly they also can't smell because this protein also has a role to play uh, in olfactory epithelia but this of course gives us a wonderful uh, clue into uh, a potential route to developing new painkilling drugs that act on this gene product.
3: Every day scientists are stepping closer to conquering pain but John Wood offers a word of caution.
10: Pain is uh, both a friend and a foe, in a sense, because if you're born in a, with a pain-free condition, you, you have terrible problems injuring yourself all the time. So pain does teach us to protect ourselves. And we don't really want to abolish chronic pain, uh, acute pain. Uh, what we really want to do is to normalize pain thresholds so that people with things like rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis just have normal levels of pain and uh, are able to sense damaging stimuli. But don't have that ongoing chronic pain which makes their lives a misery. So we're making progress both in immunology and in sensory neurobiology in understanding these kind of mechanisms and I'm I'm really actually very optimistic that new drugs will be coming through in the next few years that will treat these conditions relatively effectively.
3: That was Professor John Wood from University College London.
0: Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists.
1: This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler, Katrina Stewart and Will Hamilton. When we feel pain, it's usually our body's way of telling us something is wrong or has become damaged. Sadly, we can't say the same for our buildings, bridges and other important infrastructure. We have to monitor them ourselves to make sure they're in full working order. But now there may be some ways in which bridges can tell us when something's wrong, as Mira and Dave found out.
6: For this week's Naked Engineering, Dave and I are five metres above the ground on a bridge that's not really bridging anything. About 20 metres long, covered in lots of boxes, but with no ends really on either side. There are just ladders down and we're in the middle of a laboratory site. Now, Dave, why are we here?
11: We're looking into measuring the health of structures. Now, for example, a biological structure like my arm, if I broke it, then I'll get an intense amount of pain and I'll know not to carry on doing the thing which is damaging it. But with something built like a bridge, there's no way of communicating when it's damaged. So small damage can build up and up and up until you could possibly have a catastrophic failure.
6: One project looking into then how we can predict when something catastrophic, say, may happen to a structure like a bridge is the Structural Health Monitoring Project taking place at the National Physical Laboratory. And one of the lead scientists on this project is Eleanor
8: Barton. There are a few things which are very important when you try to assess the health or state of the structure. First of all, you need to know what you want to know about your structure, how you want to measure it, and what kind of sensors to use, and where to put the sensors to measure the quantities you want to measure.
11: You've actually got to understand your structure quite well before you can even think about measuring it.
8: We need to understand more and more how our structure behaves and how we can use it, particularly if we want to change its use or increase its use.
6: Well, this bridge that we're on here, it's quite typical of many of the bridges found in the UK that were built in, say, the 60s. So with a footbridge like this, what are some of the factors, as
8: you mentioned, that you would want to sense for then? We are looking at material degradation, which can be, manifest itself in additional strain, and therefore we've got strain sensors to measure strain. When we modelled the structure, we identified the areas where we expect to have maximum strain under loading. And therefore we put the sensors in the square-like areas where you can see electrical resistance, fiber optic sensors and vibrating wire strain sensors. Where we are standing, we can see two sensing patches just on both sides of the column because the deck has the most strain when the bridge moves.
11: So these sensors are basically measuring the actual stretching of the concrete bridge itself. So they're glued in very tightly and they can measure tiny, tiny stretches.
8: Absolutely. The fibre optical sensors will measure uh, strain uh, because the optical fibre will be stretched and the frequency of fibre grating will change depending how much that fibre uh, stretched the vibrating wire sensor like a musical instrument when you play uh, a guitar or a violin the tighter you tighten the different frequency you will hear in exactly the same way vibrating wire will tell us how much strain this bridge is experiencing at that moment in time and what causes this strain so what causes it to stretch or contract first of all it is the uh, usage of the bridge, when we walk along the bridge, when cars go across the bridge or, tra- or trains. The other um, aspect is the environmental condition. When the temperature changes, the material properties uh, of the concrete changes, and it expands or contracts, experiencing compression or tensile strain.
11: So I guess this means you've got several different signals on top of each other. You've got the ones due to things loading, you've got the ones due to the environment and possibly ones due to damage, and you've got to somehow tease out the important data from them.
8: That is absolutely correct. And that is a very, very difficult
6: uh, thing to achieve. But an additional factor you mentioned that you look at is really just what's going on inside of the bridge, and that's by monitoring the acoustic.
8: If we want to look at deterioration of the bridge, not all deterioration can be visible on the surface. Some damage can occur inside the bridge, particularly a very common cause for deterioration is corrosion of the reinforcement of the bridge. Acoustic sensors allow us to record any change occurring within the structure
11: so this is literally listening to the bridge so for example if you had a twig and it was beginning to break you'd hear sort of cracking noises would you hear something similar with the bridge
8: Absolutely. Uh, When the damage occurs, the uh, stress wave uh, propagates through the material and we can listen to it. Sometimes the frequencies are different from the frequencies we can pick up listening to it. And therefore we need the sensors of different frequencies to detect all the possible uh, damage. The systems we are using uh, on the bridge at the moment are passive acoustic sensors. They are attached permanently to the surface of the structure and they are continuously listening to any events and it is for us to, uh, scientists to determine how to interpret the noise and how to determine, de- interpret different signals.
6: So you've got Quite a variety of sensors acting on this bridge here, but are you just now leaving them on here to see what naturally happens to this bridge and the concrete within it? Or are you actually testing, say, particular loads or other factors that could damage it?
8: A unique aspect of our project is that although it is a real bridge of a typical construction, it is no longer in use. And that's why we subject it to accelerated damage and damage repair cycles, to uh, test how different systems respond to known level of damage. We introduce well-defined damage uh, by removing concrete, cutting through the rebars, and we want to assess how different monitoring technologies detect various levels of damage and how we can interpret the signal and relate to the damage if the cause of damage is unknown. So having
6: monitored then all of this and knowing perhaps the effects of different traffic loads or what potentially earthquakes, what is it hoped then the applications would be? Is it the case where this whole group of sensors will be found on every bridge in the UK?
8: Certainly not. There are far too many bridges. But what would allow us to do is that we can rank the existing bridges and we can see what would be the optimal combination of sensors for different tasks It is finding the right solution for any possible application in the future. And that is why our project is a collaborative project between uh, more than 40 different companies and organizations to investigate how we can provide the reliable, safe infrastructure for the future generations at minimum cost and with maximum sustainability.
1: Mira Senthilingam and Dave Ansell speaking to Elena Barton at the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington you're listening to the Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler, Katrina Stewart, and will Hamilton still to come we're joined by Diana O 'Carroll, who finds out why we have a spare copy of some organs in our question of the week. But first, we have a few questions from the audience so will katrina let's see what you make of these first of all, Paul Anderson writes in to ask, "Can types of pain be related to specific organs?" or
2: diseases? What do you think? Well there's actually a whole different range of types of pain that are associated with different diseases and with different organs and as medical students Katrina and I have learned about a whole range of these different pains and we've had to learn about how they relate to disease so that we can diagnose what's wrong and so first of all you have to think about where the pain is. So for example chest pain might be due to the heart or the lungs or the digestive tract, which are all in that kind of region. Then we consider the character of the pain, so what the pain feels like to the patient. So, for example, pain due to heart problems is often described as being crushing, like a heavy person sitting on their chest, whereas a sharp stabbing pain in the chest, particularly if it worsens when the person breathes in, would be more likely to be associated with the lungs. We also consider what factors make pain better or worse, and what brings the pain on. So, for example, if pain always follows when certain foods are eaten, that would suggest that there's a problem with the digestive tract, like the stomach. Whereas if the pain came on whenever the person did exercise and then went away after a few minutes of rest, that would strongly suggest a heart-related problem. And then if the, if the pain got better when the patient took their medication for heart problems, then obviously that would strengthen the case. And doctors check whether other symptoms accompany the pain, like feeling short of breath, which would push you towards a heart or lung problem. So there's a huge wealth of information that can be gained simply by listening to the patient describe the pain. You can localise it, characterise it, and use all the clues to pin down a diagnosis of the problem. So they really are symptomatic of, of the problems that are causing them, which is, I guess, what the pain is there for biologically. Absolutely. Although one thing that we're always taught is that patients don't read the textbooks, so they won't necessarily describe it with the right words.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't think you can blame them too much for that. That's got to be your job in the future to work out what they really mean. Um, So moving on from the pain itself to a way to stop the pain, Adrian Lisecki has written in to ask how morphine actually works to kill pain off. Katrina, what do you think?
3: Yeah, well, morphine is one of the most famous painkillers, and it's an opioid drug, which means it's a cousin of the ancient drug opium, which has been used socially and in medicine for thousands of years. And these drugs bind to the opioid receptors, which are on the surface of nerve cells, and that sets off a chain of chemical reactions inside the cell, which ultimately causes the cell membrane to be less excitable, meaning that nerve cells become sluggish and don't fire so many impulses. So morphine can dull pain by silencing nerves in the spine that carry pain signals. But it also has complex effects in the pain processing areas in the brain. And morphine receptors are found on nerves all over the body. So the problem is that putting a damper on all of these nerves can do more than just kill the pain. So to take one example, the nerves that supply the muscles in the gut are slowed down by morphine, causing constipation and then all the other side effects due to sluggish nerves, basically.
1: So this is why people who are on morphine for long terms need to find other alternatives, not to mention, of course, the fact that it's really very addictive.
3: Exactly, exactly. Probably got time
1: for maybe one or two more. Um, We've had a question from Doug. He wants to know how migraines are managed medically. Now, migraines are debilitating. They're a horrendous experience. Katrina, maybe you could let us know how to treat them.
3: Yeah, well, classic painkillers, um, things like ibuprofen, aspirin, paracetamol, They can help dull the pain of migraines, just like any other pain. But for many people, these drugs really aren't enough. So a really odd selection of drugs have been shown to help prevent migraines in the first place, actually. Things like um, beta blockers, which are generally used to prevent heart attacks and lower blood pressure, um, anticonvulsant drugs, and even some antidepressants. So how these drugs help is a bit of a mystery in some cases. Um, Many migraine sufferers still have to go to great lengths to avoid their migraine triggers.
1: So going back to the ways that pain is treated we've heard how morphine works to treat pain but what about a more common drug aspirin? Will how does aspirin actually work and how does it differ from the other over-the-counter drugs ibuprofen and paracetamol?
2: So aspirin works by inhibiting the production of certain molecules called prostaglandins And these are responsible for promoting inflammation, swelling and pain in areas of the body that have been damaged. And they're produced by an enzyme called cyclooxygenase or COX and that's the target that aspirin inhibits and actually blocks it from working by binding to the site of where the the enzyme has its activity. And you mentioned some other over-the-counter drugs like ibuprofen and that's actually the same class of drug as aspirin and it operates in a very similar way. Paracetamol is a bit more tricky and it does seem to inhibit COX but it also has other actions as well and it may act on the cannabinoid receptors in the brain which are actually the same receptors that respond to cannabis which itself has some pain-killing effects. So paracetamol is a bit different to ibuprofen and aspirin, but they're all classed in a, in a, in a similar category, uh, which is different to morphine that we heard about before. And aspirin also has this secondary effect to do with uh, preventing blood clots from forming, and it does that when given at a slightly lower dose and also over a longer term, and that's why the low-dose aspirin is given for people at high risk of heart attacks.
1: And on the same sort of topic, Diving Duncan on Twitter has asked if it's possible to, to pre load with analgesics so could you take your aspirin in advance of maybe doing some diy where you suspect you're probably going to hurt yourself
3: well, of course, people do it all the time. I mean, before surgery, people have painkillers so that when they wake up, they're not in agony. And it's very common to take the pain relief in advance. I mean, the only if but maybe behind that, you wouldn't necessarily want to take aspirin a high dose every time you do your DIY because, of course, it's got side effects. And if you, if it's not a very high chance you're going to hurt yourself, you don't want to be taking painkillers all the time.
1: Katrina, well, thank you very much for all of your answers and thank you to the listeners for their questions. Now, of course, Diana O'Carroll always handles a very tricky question and she's with us now for our question of the week.
7: This week, what's the point of all these multiple organs? Hi, I'm Rebecca
0: Ferris. I live in Norwich and I was just wondering, why is it that we have two of some organs, like we have two eyes and two kidneys, when we could probably make do with just one, But we only have one of some other organs. If we're going to have a spare kidney, why don't we have a spare liver? And could it change as we evolve? If we don't really need these things, could we lose them? Or could we get an extra
7: one of some other organs? Thank you. And here's the evolutionary point of view.
0: I'm Dr. Sebastian Schimeld in the Department of Zoology at the University of Oxford. Now, that's a really interesting question and it's really got two answers, one of which is how we develop in the womb, but there's also an evolutionary explanation to this, which is how we got to be in this situation in the first place. It's not just us that are bilaterally symmetrical, all vertebrates are, be they, they birds, reptiles, frogs or fish. And in fact, not just vertebrates, but almost all other animals are bilaterally symmetrical as well. This includes worms and flies. And this is where bilateral symmetry evolved a very long time ago, at least 500 or 600 million years ago. And really, our body plan has been locked into bilateral symmetry since that point. And this brings me on to the last part of the question, which is, could it change? And I I think really that given that we've been locked into this body plan for for such a long period of time. I think it's unlikely that it's going to change, but I wouldn't say completely impossible because there are one or two organisms, which are one or two animals, which have managed to, to change this. And, and a really good example of this is the octopus, which not only has a, a major heart, but has managed to evolve two ancillary hearts as well to help its blood flow. So unlikely to change, I think, but perhaps not completely impossible given enough time and the right selection
7: and the developmental point of view from Dr Robert Whittaker at Cambridge University.
12: The obvious first reaction of many people would be to suggest that multiple identical organs are simply there for spare parts, but I do not believe that this is the correct explanation. I'd like to look at the conundrum from a developmental point of view. The early embryo has an outer layer, a single midline tube passing from mouth to anus to become the gut, From the single and simple midline tube is developed the intestines, but many other organs develop from it by a system of budding from the tube. Such organs include the lungs, the liver, the pancreas, and whether these become a single organ or two organs depends on whether the bud that grows from the tube stays as a single bud or divides to give more than one. The liver, for instance, is a single organ organ whereas the lungs come from two buds to give the organs that we see in the developed child. So what about the kidneys, I hear you ask? Well, they develop not as a single tube as with the gut, but on either side of the body quite separately. There's a fundamental difference between there being two parts to a single organ, and examples as we've given are the lungs and the brain, which all develop from a single outgrowth, as opposed to two separate organs with identical functions such as the kidneys, the ovaries, the testicles, which all develop on separate sides of the body.
7: So it's a combination of midline symmetry inherited from our fishy ancestors. It's a result of our developmental processes as budding embryos. And as with many things, it's like that because it works. And in some cases, it's always good to carry a spare. Next week, is it an innie or an outy? My name is Nikki Goodwin, and I
3: live in South Africa. I recently took this photograph of my footprints in the sand, and it was only after that I noted that the footprints are not actually in the sand. They appear to be raised on the sand. How could this be? Why do depressions
7: sometimes appear as expressions? Answers to chris at scientists.com or write on the forum, and that's at com forward slash forum. You can Facebook us or Twitter at Naked Scientists.
1: Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. But why would footprints in sand appear raised? Was it just an optical illusion, or was something going on to really lift those prints out of the surrounding sand? If you know, then get in touch. But that's all we have time for this week, thanks to Jim Usherwood, Carol Ratcliffe, Mike Bailey and John Wood, to our production team of Senther Senthalingam and Diana O'Carroll, and to our special guest presenters, Katrina Stewart and Will Hamilton. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at the Naked Scientists, you can contact us through Twitter by tweeting at Naked Scientists, right on our wall at thenakedscientists.com dot com slash Facebook, or email Chris at thenakedscientists dot com.
0: The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK FAST. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.